And please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, we're looking at verses 1 through 3 again. And just so you know, I, you know I, we started this two weeks ago. And if you, if you didn't catch something in that sermon, or if you missed something of the details in this sermon, you can always find them on the website. We try to post them Monday, no later than Monday afternoon. And so I know that the dating of Revelation was pretty technical. It, it, it's technical details. In fact, introductory information is oftentimes necessarily technical. Uh, but at the same time, it's important to know that biblical teaching is that, that the truth of Scripture is accessible to children, right? to everyone, every age. That's no less true of Revelation. So this is a little encouragement to you children. Children, I do encourage you to read Revelation with your parents, to spend time at home reading through this book over a period of time. Read through Revelation with your parents. And I suggest that not because I think you'll need their help, but because I think you're actually going to help them to understand it better. You have a way of seeing the big picture in ways that your parents will not be able to. You won't get tripped up on all the details that adults have heard throughout their lives in the past that tend to cloud their interpretation more than help it. And one of those categories, one of those things that we'll be talking about today is the idea of symbolism. Right, for many, symbolism seems like a cop-out. Right, those who refuse to take the Bible seriously read everything as symbolism. It's all figurative. None of it really happened in history. And so shouldn't we, in contrast, read the Bible literally as much as is possible? Doesn't Scripture become untrustworthy if it speaks figuratively? Listen to Phil Riken's um, handbook. Actually, it's Leland and Phil Riken, and they have a, a third author as well, um, who speak of this idea of symbolism. It says, to say that the mode is symbolic, and he, they're talking about the book of Revelation being that the mode of, of relating, of communicating in the book of Revelation, the mode is symbolic. But they say, to say that the mode is symbolic is not to deny that the characters and events are real. What is at stake is how the characters and events are portrayed. So the symbols speak of realities, beings who really exist, and events that really did happen or really do happen in time. And frankly, no one denies that Revelation speaks in symbols. Everyone agrees that there are symbols, but the question has always been, what spiritual and or physical realities do those symbols represent? That's always been the question. What do they point to? And so that's what we're going to consider as we look at Revelation 1, 1 through 3 this morning. And before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this introduction to Revelation and all the men who have studied this book and and come up with various ways of interpreting the text. Lord, help us to wrestle with these means and modes of interpretation and, 
and come away with a sharper understanding of your word. To have a, a better understanding of you and ourselves in it. And to even see how we can understand the gospel better by studying the book of Revelation. So Lord, we need your eyes to see. We need ears to hear. We need hearts that are softened by your spirit to respond in obedience to your word. So may you receive all the glory. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Amen. This is God's holy word. So we'll start with this question. How should we interpret the book? When did or when will the events described in Revelation take place in history? Have they already occurred? Are they about to occur? Are they happening in the present? That is the question we face as we interpret this book. And there are four basic approaches to interpreting Revelation. You've got it in your handout there, a brief summary of each one. But we begin with preterists. The preterist interpretation, or preterists, they primarily find fulfillment at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Although some do consider the fall of Rome in the 5th century AD as the fulfillment of Revelation, the vast majority of them do see it as the beginning or, or, or at the very time um, of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. In either case, though, the, the description of tribulation in Revelation, the, the ideas of, of tribulation and, and rebellion and apostasy, all of that has no reference to the future. If it does, it's a very small part of the future. The events happened shortly after John wrote them. That's what they want to emphasize. And here's what I appreciate about the preterist view, is its relevance to the original audience. Because we just read in this introduction in verse 1 that he wants to show his servants the things that must soon take place. They must soon take place. And then again, at the end of this passage, and at the end of verse 3, for the time is near. So they take that very seriously. We do need to find application in Revelation for the first century readers, right? That, those seven churches in Asia Minor, there needs to be some relevance for them in the book of Revelation. It needs to make sense to them. And so it's always important to consider how the original audience would have understood the text. If my interpretation would make no sense to that first reader, then I should probably abandon my interpretation of the text. It's probably not accurate. Okay? How we interpret the symbolism in Revelation should be rooted in examples that that first century church would have understood. However, you can't stop there, right? We cannot stop in the first century. I need to see relevance in our own age as we're reading through it. In addition, Daniel chapter 2 and 7 predict a universal judgment. And if, if the judgment that's described in Revelation is the destruction of Jerusalem, then it's not universal. 
It's a very local judgment upon Jerusalem itself, upon Israel, an apostate Israel, who they would say is referred to as Babylon in Revelation in a very unique way because Babylon is never, ever used to refer to Israel. But that's what the preterist has to believe because they want to interpret the book as as describing a very localized destruction of Jerusalem. Okay? And yet Daniel 2 and 7 don't speak of a localized destruction. It speaks of a universal judgment. So that's primarily why I would disagree with the preterist view in and of itself. Secondly, you have the futurists. Futurists await a fulfillment just before the second coming of Christ. Now, anyone who has read The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey or the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins has a pretty good idea of this approach. They're not always so fanciful, but the futurists do tend to have an approach like that. And, and some of the modern manifestations of this view are are really out there, right? With the help of websites like prophecynewswatch.com, futurists come up with very engrossing interpretations of the demonic locusts described in Revelation chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. They, in fact, see in those demonic locusts a fleet of helicopters hovering over the world and destroying it. Okay, now, now here's how they interpret it. Listen to this. In appearance, the locusts are like horses prepared for battle, On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. And you say, well, I'm not sure the the propeller looks like a crown of gold, but the face, I could see, like if you're looking from the front of a helicopter with the two windows on either side and the grill in front of it, I could see a a bit of a human, the resemblance of a human face there. Their hair, like a woman's hair, I'm not sure where that comes in. Their teeth, like lion's teeth, referring to their their ammunition. They have breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. You can kind of make sense of that. Their tail has a sting like a scorpion, and their power to hurt people was for five months in their tails. So you have this idea of the the missiles that they're firing at people stinging, but not ultimately destroying them. So that's what they see. Now, Here's the problem with that. The biggest problem I have is, could you imagine any first century reader coming away with anything close, anything remotely resembling helicopters wreaking destruction on planet Earth? Uh, It's it's remarkable. It's it's too far-fetched for any first century reader to come to to understanding like that. However, I do want to say something positive about this view. There are several passages throughout Revelation that clearly describe the time just prior to Christ's return in opposition to the way a preterist reads Revelation, right? Where it's all in the past, there's clearly passages that speak of a future fulfillment. And so while I disagree with the futurists and their speculations about how those events will come to play out, they do fill us with a right anticipation for Christ's return. Right? That in and of itself is healthy and biblical. To be waiting, to be calling Christ to come, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're ready for you to return. That's a gr- that was the great hope of the first reader. They're reminded time and time again to have that view. And yet, the entire period between the first and second coming of Christ is described as the latter days. It's not just a future 
judgment. Um, Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. They're returning to the Lord throughout the, the, this present age, from the first to the second coming of, of Christ. You have people, Israelites, returning to him. And you have the same thing in, in Micah chapter 4, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up <coughs> excuse me, above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Peoples here is, is a reference to the nations flowing to the mountain that is above all. And again, so you see this throughout this present age. Israelites coming to the Lord, or Israel coming to the Lord through Christ, you see uh, the nations coming to the, to the Lord through Christ. You see a, a reference to the last hour in 1 John. Or sorry, let me go to 2 Timothy first. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. So the last days, we've You've talked about the latter days here in Timothy. He's talking about the last days. And it's the idea that it's happening now. These, they're in the last days. They've entered into them. Um, in fact, John is even more specific. He calls it the last hour. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. It is presently, as he's writing to them this letter, it is the last hour. And you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Okay, so this present age is defined as the latter days, the last days, or even the last hour. So much of what we read in Revelation, I believe, will have past, it will have present, and it will have future manifestations of fulfillment. Right, so that's my problem with the futurist view. It focuses almost solely on the future. Thirdly, you have the historist, the historist, historicist, that's how I want to say it, the historicist. Historicists believe the majority of Revelation provides a chronological overview of church history from Christ's first coming to his second coming. So this approach was standard among most 16th century reformers. For instance, Jonathan Edwards thought that he was living between the sixth and seventh bowl. Uh, that was being poured out. Okay? It's right, it rightly values the seven first century churches that are addressed. It, it values the address to those churches as being relevant to them in the first century. It also rightly sees the second coming of Christ at the end of the age, at the end of the present age. So it says these are, it, this, this message is for them, and it's also for this future uh, judgment that's coming. But the problem is that it sees everything in between, the 2,000 plus years in between Christ's first and second coming as being a chronological order of the end times. Okay, so, so maybe you're understanding where that, how that could be challenging because depending on when you're born or depending on how you interpret certain events in history and even which nation you're from, you're going to apply the text of Revelation in a very unique way. You're going to see relevance in passages to a particular event or, or person and say, oh, this must be speaking of so-and-so. That'll have nothing to do with a first century reader or a future generation. 
right? So you can simply just kind of pick and choose where you connect the dots as a historical position or from a historicist point of view. The creative historians can certainly find vague connections to particular people and events in chronological order, but there's no way anyone could be certain that their connections were right as opposed to someone else's. In addition, like the futurists, Revelation 4 through 19 would become nonsensical for first century readers. Right? It would be later generations that that all applied to. So how could the early church, in verse 3, keep what is written? How could they keep what is written if what they're reading about are events that were fulfilled in progressive stages over the course of 2,000 plus years? Or is it simply not relevant to them? I have a problem with either interpretation. So this view is dependent upon subjective information, which is why there is no unity among historicists. And it's ironic, I think, because those who were, were fundamental or, or the, the authors, really, of the principles of sola scriptura oftentimes lack an awareness of John's allusions to relevant passages of the Old Testament. John is frequently alluding to the Old Testament. We'll talk about that next week more specifically, but he does it all throughout the book of Revelation. And so our first step should be to use Scripture to interpret Scripture, which sola scriptura teaches us. Right, the analogy of Scripture is that we should take the clearer passages of Scripture to understand the more obscure ones, and we should try to find a harmony between those passages. Well, simply focusing on historical events or people first as the primary application of a text um, ignores some of those illusions. And I do think that's one of, the, one of the blind spots in this case. And frankly, if you're going to have a blind spot about... Make it about eschatology, right? This is a good place to have it because it's absolutely a secondary issue. I don't, I don't expect everyone here to agree with everything I say as we as we make our way through Revelation. Right? Um, if you don't, at the end, however, know more of Christ, and if you are not more in love with Him and having a better understanding of who you are and your need for Him, then that's where I would have failed you, right? Not to have a, a, a different view about how it's all going to play out because really much, some of this, we, we are going to have to wait and see. All right, so even if you agree with me in the end, but I haven't presented Christ, then I've failed, all right? Fourthly, the idealists. Idealists are less concerned with specific events. Rather, they find spiritual principles <clears throat> that are repeated throughout the church age. Idealists do not find chronological order, but they find patterns of recapitulation. Now, that's just a big fancy word for this. They find different viewpoints and different imagery that is presented in cycles, where events are cycling back through recapitulating what's already been described. Okay, this is going to be explained more fully as we look at the structure of Revelation next week, and then I'll be done with this introductory material right, once we look at the structure. But that's where I'm going to really focus on trying to prove to you that, that Revelation is, is presented in cycles, not chronological order. Okay, so we see, uh, and each cycle is going to have a different viewpoint, different imagery that, used, that is used to explain and describe the same basic time period. <clears throat> so Revelation is presented as cycles of events that repeat themselves, 
And according to this hermeneutic, John's words have direct application to those suffering under persecution, um, under Roman emperors. It would also relate to those suffering in later eras under any kind of evil dictatorship. And finally, it points to a future period of tribulation that will be the climactic expression of evil. So the first to articulate this interpretive view would have been Augustine in the early 5th century. So my approach to Revelation represents something of a combination of all of these views with a heavy emphasis upon the idealist position. And some have called this the eclectic method of interpretation, um, because, almost calling it a fifth interpretive, uh, interpretive mode because so many of uh, Reformed scholars have adopted this view, an eclectic view. You could read Greg Bill, Joel Beakey, Vern Poitras, Dennis Johnson, Rick Phillips, William Hendrickson, and I could name several others for you. Um, Herman Bovink, these are all views of uh, revelation that are an eclectic view, emphasizing an idealist one. So both preterist and futurist views tend to minimize application to the present day, right? If you're a preterist, you see most of it as relating to the past. If you're a futurist, you see most of it as relating to the future. And so the present day lacks some application. The historicist begins to correct that tendency by finding ongoing relevance to the text, but it's muddled by, by really nothing to, to, to no scriptural support. And so all of the views have something to contribute, but none of them are adequate by themselves. You kind of need to take the best of each view and reject what is negative or, or the weaknesses of each view. So let's consider symbolism. Taking that interpretive view, kind of an eclectic view of all four of those, let's interpret a few of the symbols that we'll come across in Revelation. Let me also try to make the point or make the case from this opening passage that John's vision is filled with symbolic imagery. The scenes are so vivid and they change so frequently, it's like watching a movie. And I do believe that we're meant to see what John sees. We're to envision or visualize the images as if we were standing next to him as he's describing it to us. And yet there are some images that are described that, are, that combine so much symbolism that you're, 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 it's impossible to visualize. You start to visualize it and then it changes on you, right? The, the symbolism changes so that what, what looks like in Revelation 5, 8, as seven eyes becomes seven spirits. Well, how do you visualize that? Seven eyes of a, of a lamb that become seven spirits. I don't know how you would visualize that, right? It becomes a little bit hard. So although John actually did see something, what was depicted in his vision and described for us is symbolic. And it remains symbolic. Donald Richardson explains it. Symbolic writing does not paint pictures. It's not pictographic, but ideographic. The skull and crossbones of a bottle of medicine is a symbol of poison. It's not a picture. There, and so he goes on to say the fish, the lamb, the lion are all symbols of Christ, but never to be taken as pictures of him. Oftentimes, Revelation is taken or treated as, as this ultra-long parable um, or allegory. So just as, as people often misinterpret parables 
and attach each element of the parable to a spiritual component, they, they do the same with Revelation. On the other hand, instead of spiritualizing every element that is described, others may attempt to read it in a perfectly literal sense. And it reminds me of an image I came across in seminary that was on the whiteboard in one of our classes. Um, and it was the image depicting, they were, they were studying the Song of, of Solomon, and it was an image depicting the bride of the, the bride in the Song of Solomon in, in, in chapter 4. So her eyes were literally doves. Her hair was a flock of leaping goats. Her teeth were a flock of sheep, shorn female sheep, right, ewes. Um, her lips were a scarlet thread, just a, a thin scarlet thread. Her cheeks were the halves of a pomegranate. And her neck was the strong tower of David decorated with shields of warriors. She truly was hideous, right? I mean, if you take that literally, you make a mockery of poetry. Poetry, like apocryphal literature, is full of symbolism. It's meant to be taken that way. It's meant to portray something, to represent something else, some spiritual or physical reality it points to. And so instead of reading literally where possible, when we come to poetry, when we come to apocryphal literature, in fact, we should flip that on its head and we should read it symbolically where possible. That should be our default interpretation. Right? And I, Dennis Johnson speaks of that in his commentary. And this is evident from the very opening verse. In verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angels to his servant John. You see, made it known is an allusion to Daniel. It's an allusion to Daniel chapter 2, verse 45, where Daniel's statement to King Nebuchadnezzar after he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, this dream of the statue, he tells him this, God has made it known to you. And it, a, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this? So he's saying, God has revealed to you what is going to happen after this. The word can mean signify. It's translated here, made it known or made known. It can mean signify rather than simply communicate. It can, it can mean simply to communicate, but here it's very clearly used in the language of, of symbolism to, to signify. That's that's how he interpreted Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He took the, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed about and he applied the statue to historical events that were soon to take place. It signified rather than simply communicated. It, it's frequently found in the Gospels to speak of the miracles of Jesus as signs. And so Greg Bill argues that the word literally means this, to communicate by symbols, at least in the way that John is using it in Revelation 1.1. You could read it like this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he communicated by symbols by sending his angel to his servant. So this is precisely why John would use the language of to show. He gave it to him to show to his servants in order to visualize, to, to see communication 
There has to be symbols, not just words. So, so making something visually known necessarily involves symbols. So Greg Bill says this, the allusion to Daniel chapter 2, verses 28 through 30, as well as verse 45, and I just looked at verse 45, but the allusions here to this in, in this introduction indicate that a symbolic vision and interpretation is going to be part of the warp and woof of the means of communication throughout Revelation. In other words, it should be our default method of interpretation. Daniel interpreted the king's dream about the statue as symbolically representing major kingdoms. So let's go back to our consideration of the beast, right? The idealist would interpret the beast as a reference to state opposition to Christ in, in all of its historical embodiments. And in your handout there, I've, I've given you some options here. The idealist would see state opposition to Christ in all of its historical embodiments. So there would be first century examples of the beast, such as Nero and Domitian, but it might also find examples in the likes of Hitler and Stalin. None of these, however, are the final and climactic embodiment of the Antichrist, for that's reserved for the period just prior to Christ's second coming. So whereas the futurists and the preterists will focus on specific individuals, specific events related to the beast, the idealist sees the pattern and principles by which the beast operates as having the most relevance for our understanding and then applying in every age as we see many antichrists coming. Furthermore, an awareness of the Old Testament is critical. Right? With an awareness of the Old Testament, we should find relevant aspects of redemptive history that bring home a very gospel-centered message as we're reading Revelation. So Adam was created in the image of God, and he served as the representative for all his descendants. And because of Adam's headship over humanity, his fall into sin plunged humanity into a state of sin. So you have Adam as a representative of all humanity and plunging humanity into sin. Mankind would have remained in that state of sin were it not for the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who perfectly obeyed where Adam failed and then died and bears the penalty for all his children. In Christ, Christians have transitioned out of the state of sin and misery and been brought into a state of salvation by a redeemer. But then in Revelation, you get this third figure that comes along the beast of Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. He attempts to bring, he attempts to become a third representative for humanity. He offers a counterfeit work which deceives many into following him. The beast is likely symbolic of a particular human being or institution. Right? It's, it's likely symbolic of that, but as beast, he is subject to the last Adam. As Vern Poitras points out in Genesis 1.28, it indicates that the beasts are to be subordinate to Adam. Right? In Genesis 1.28, the beasts were subordinate to Adam. This third beast is subordinate to the last Adam. So in the last days, the last Adam 
will make all beasts subject to him, including the great beast. So seeing the deceitful schemes of the devil and his minions laid out for us in Revelation helps us to gird ourselves with the whole armor of God, right? Ephesians chapter 6. We can now see through John's vision that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Revelation shows us the reality of spiritual warfare. But even more importantly, it shows us who wins the war. God's promises become a firm foundation for us in Revelation. So that just like we sang in the last verse, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.